Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. I will be reading scripture today. It won't be on the screen, um, but I will hopefully read it well enough that you can follow as I read. Uh, it's coming from the scripture passage I'm reading today is Proverbs 2, verses 1 to 11. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He holds success in store for the upright. He is a shield to those who w- whose walk is blameless, for he guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. Then you will understand what is right and just and fair, every good path. For wisdom will enter your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will protect you, and understanding will guard you. This is God's Word. Hey, welcome. Good morning. So glad that you're with us here at Upper Room. This is kind of a new thing for us, but hopefully not the last time we do this, although I guess maybe we'll see. Um, I'm uh, thrilled to be joined with uh, two people who have had a great influence on my life, one person for a number of decades. Uh, I didn't choose it, but I'm very glad it happened to me, uh, which is my father, who's here at the end. Um, so now that he's uh, officially retired after how many years of pastor minutes? 36 years. Uh, so I just assume he's going to be here for the next many, many months. So um, uh, so we thought we'd, uh, I said, hey, are you free? Are you coming to church on the 17th? He said, yeah. I said, great. You can uh, you can join us in a live Q&A. So, uh, so thanks for coming, Dad. Appreciate you spending one of your first retired Sundays. At the front. And then another person who's had a great influence on my life just in recent years is Mark. And uh, Mark's uh, hopefully not a stranger to most of you, but um, in case you don't know, our two churches, uh, Upper Room Community Church and Connection Rexdale, which uh, Mark is the pastor of, were both planted from Rexdale Alliance Church uh, Upper Room 10 years ago and Connection Church three years ago. And Mark and I have uh, really just enjoyed uh, being in pastoral ministry together and and sharpening (coughs) each other and challenging each other. And and, uh, he's been a great voice in in our own community preaching here, and I've had the opportunity to be over there. So... um, Uh, And our two churches are actually partnering together over the next year uh, in various ways. And so this is one of those Sundays. We actually did this uh, hot seat Sunday at Connection um, uh, a little while ago. Mark, if he leaves early, it's not because he's bored or uh, just trying to duck a question, although that may be. Uh, But his church service starts at 11. So he's going to try to just make sure he's there uh, in time. So uh, but thanks for being with us, guys. One of the reasons uh, I wanted to do a a Sunday like this, and and hopefully as we regularly do, it's called Hot Seat Sunday, um, but we don't actually really feel on the hot seat because we don't, right up front, we don't pretend to know everything. So you might get some good I don't knows this morning um, from us. Um, But one of the things that Jesus did um, so well, and and which was, I think, not only uh, a wise move as as a teacher, as he was the greatest teacher of all time, but he sent a message about who God is by the fact he was always dialoguing with people. It was always a back and forth, um, and, and people asking him questions and him asking people questions and conversation. And just at a very basic level, it just communicates to us that God wants to be in conversation with us. 
And that church and the community of faith is not a place where we're meant to have all the answers because only he is ultimate wisdom. But it is a place where we should be able to ask the questions that we have. Or as I like to say, God has a chest that's big enough to beat on and say, God, I don't understand. What about this? What about that? And so even some of the questions that have come in over the week um, and, and that come in this morning, and, and my, my phone number's on the back of your bulletin, so if you want to text questions in, please do. We'd love to take as many live off the floor as we can, and, and texting them in is kind of the best way to do that. Um, but, but there's going to be things that come up. We say, yeah, these things are mysteries, but here's what we've discovered, really, in our own journey. Here's what we see in Scripture. Here's how we've seen that play out. But just to know that um, God is someone that we are meant to dialogue with, that asking questions is not a threatening thing to him at all, and therefore it shouldn't be in the church, that this isn't a place we come because we've got it all figured out. It's just that we want to know more, and that's why we're here. So I just hope that that's, um, that's maybe a little bit of, of, of taste of that this morning and, and part of the culture of our church that we want to continue on. So, um, so some of you texted in questions already. I see my phone. Can, can you hold these? Um, that's uh, starting to go here, which is great. Um, and, uh, okay, this is great. Is it, you, know, you know, we did send the note out ahead of time, but here we go. Um, so let's start here. I was reading Matthew 6 on not being anxious about food and clothes. This is when Jesus is talking about it. It's not up there. We can just blank that one out. We'll, we'll go there next, Joe. Okay, oh, great. That's awesome. Um, I was reading Matthew 6 about not being anxious about food and clothes when he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about what your, li- uh, your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Two questions. What is the balance between being proactive and not being anxious? And second, I, c- I think I can apply in my life, but I have trouble understanding how this promise is fulfilled in the many believers around the world who do not have clothes or food. Dad. <laughs> Sounds like you. So. Well, I, you know, th- I think the balance is, uh, is, is an important uh, question. I actually got rid of the word balance somewhere along my life. Eugene Peterson said, balance is a very static concept, whereas tension is something that's much more dynamic. Tension is a much better word than, uh, than uh, balance because you're just kind of moving one side to the other all the time, and that's how you actually even drive down the middle of a road. You don't just lock your steering wheel in one position, finding the perfect balance. You're just doing this all the time. And this is one of those issues in there. And I think the issue has to do with one of trust. We are asked to work. In Ephesians, we says, let let him who stole, steal no more, but start working so you can provide for your family, you can give to others, etc. So we are supposed to take our work responsibly. The Bible begins with God at work and puts human beings at work. So it's very, very clear that we're supposed to work. In First Thessalonians, for example, <coughs> in the light of the fact that people, Jesus was coming back again, some people believed they were not working. They were becoming idle. And Paul said, rebuke these kinds of people. You get busy. If you don't work, you shouldn't be eating. So the Bible is very strong about our responsibility to work and provide for ourselves <coughs> and for others. I think the issue is one of trust. As you are working, who are you trusting? Are you trusting in your own abilities? Are you trusting in your boss? Are you going to have to uh, do something unethical to get ahead of somebody else in the line? That's when things get all messed up. Whereas a life of trust, and that's nurtured by two things. It's nurtured by word. It's nurtured by worship and prayer. And so we work in the context of a life of worship. And so while we are doing our part, we, the trust is not in our working, but the trust is in, is in our God. 
and just like the trust is not in the bible reading but in the god about whom we're reading the trust is not in our praying but the god to whom we are praying so work in a setting in a setting of life of worship and prayer is what i think allows that tension now once in a while we'll get it wrong we might suddenly find ourselves if we lose a job like i remember a time when vijay came home one day and said uh, sham asked what are you doing honey he said i just got fired i mean my work got moved someplace else so yeah so there was a time and a season of anxiety but because my wife is a prayer warrior she's going back to the word of god she got some insights from the book of numbers was able to share that with vijay god gave him peace and moved him to where he did the last six years of his work before coming here so that's kind of my first level answer to that question is an issue of you work hard but who do you trust becomes the key question i was wondering how many levels do you have in answers to that <laughs> <laughs> The other question was um, about those around the world who don't right. have um, food and clothing, and how do believers, how do we, how do we understand that? Because right. it says God will provide. Um, so that's obviously a difficult question. One of the things that I have been realizing recently is that um, actually in the world there is enough food and clothing, and that there are those of us who live in this part of the world that never really have to think about that. And so I wonder often whether we sort of point the finger at God and saying, how come you're not doing this when we actually have more awareness <coughs> um, and ability and means now than ever before to actually do something about it? And so it's one of the things that we've done. But uh, in the early church, if you look at the, the uh, description of the church in Acts, people were selling stuff they had so they could give to people who were in need. It was a very clear needs and means that God was bringing together. There were those with needs and those with means, and God said to the, the move the hearts of those with means and said, free up money to help those. And so um, I think there, that's certainly one thing where we can, um, you have to move past philosophizing about it and say, well, God, what do you want me to do about the fact that there are believers in the world who are praying to you, and might I be the answers, um, one of the answers to, to those prayers? I'll just add one more thing to that, and I think I, s I heard one other dimension of that question, but what about those, so even if we, had, that's our responsibility, but what about those believers who right now are going hungry, who are not getting the food? How do they read Matthew chapter 6 and answer that? And I think the, the fundamental answer to that is that the cross looms large and central over our whole life. Uh, and so suffering is an inevitable component of that calling, and most of us here don't experience suffering in that particular form. But for that believer who right now is, is dying or maybe not able to feed his family or family and struggling with that, and they read Matthew chapter 6, all of those promises have got to be tempered by the fact that the cross and the call to suffer hangs over the whole thing, but that suffering is not meaningless. It might even result in death. <coughs> and on the other side, it says our suffering, our present suffering, our working and eternal weight of glory. So I think the ultimate answer to the believer who is right now not seeing the promise of Matthew chapter 6 met, I think the fundamental problem is that God is, don't be anxious about what will happen. The promise isn't that you will get food. Uh, so for that person in that situation, every individual promise of well-being and blessing needs to be tempered with the fact that this side of the cross, suffering has a huge role to play in our understanding of our life, whether we personally suffer or not. I mean, that's at the intellectual level. The practical level, Vijay says, what makes sense. Um, so, Mark, maybe this is kind of a, a build on that. Um, is it God's will um, for us to suffer in order to get closer to him? So when we're sick or, or lost a job or a loved one, in light of the parable in the father asking for bread, will he give him a stone? 
mm. and a father who disciplines those he loves. Yeah. So how do we, you yeah. know, understand that? So I think often we, we categorize it just in one narrow way, right? Like the suffering is this way, and if it's not, it's that. But what we see in Scripture, kind of what you just alluded to, is that they're actually multi-dimensions. So it's not just, hey, if you're suffering, God's teaching you something. It's okay. So other times it's like, no, there's, there's evil in the world, and this is not God's original plan. You don't see that in the Garden of Eden. So uh, I think often coming to suffering with a posture of understanding, uh, is this my cross to bear? Is this a result of sin in my <coughs> life, a result of just sin in the world? So I think you have to come at it uh, far more open postured, listening to God, trying to understand what is happening through this and understanding that God can still work through these things, um, but knowing that they're multi-layered and different things. Is that, is there, is there another, I'm trying to remember if I got it all. No, that, that's good. I, I think to understanding, you know, that God is not the author of evil. Mm-hmm. Um, that when God made the world, <coughs> he made it beautiful and us within it with enough for us. And, th- and yet there's brokenness in everything because of sin. And so God is in the midst of remaking the world. As I think, you know, like you said, living in light of the cross, I think the one thing as people of the cross, the one thing the cross <coughs> tells us is suffering um, is not pointless. Uh, like in the sense that we grieve loss and we grieve death and we grieve pain and we, and we should because God grieves with us. But the one thing we know is it's not the final answer or the final mark on our lives. And I think that's just a hard truth to grasp because in some cases in this life, it ends in death. In fact, for every one of us, it ends in death. The only hope we have actually is, and it is why when I, when I, I you know, follow Jesus, I think because the answer that the cross gives me to suffering is better than any other worldview gives me. Mm. You know, the, 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 uh, the, the Eastern kind of a, a neo sort of Buddhist worldview that we have in this life is, okay, well, you know, get away from pain and get away from pleasure because the, that's where we get into trouble. And so try to achieve a state of sort of oneness so that we can not be affected by pain. And yet we know that we can't escape the pain. There has to be something greater than it or beyond it. Um, and so I think the cross and the empty grave are the tensions, like you said, that we live between in the midst of suffering. Honestly, Jesus clawing the ground of the garden and say, God, really, there's no other way than this. And I think we can say we can say that. And also on the cross saying, why have you abandoned me in my greatest hour of need? And yet faithfully trusting that there would be an empty tomb um, and that God would vindicate him. So we live, I think, in the tension of those. And I think, Mark, you're right. We can't be, I think we have to be careful too in the advice that we give or to even to know, to think we know what God might be doing in the life of another person. Oh, God must be doing this. God must be doing that. I remember in the book of Job, right? All of Job's friends, the first seven days when they saw him, it's a book of suffering, right? The first seven days, his friends said nothing to him. They just cried with him. They got into trouble when they opened their mouths and tried to explain what was going on. Mm-hmm. And in the end, God says to them, you know what, you, rep- you misrepresented me. You don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and, and so I've realized, God, I, I, don't, I can't say I know what you're doing. I need to learn to weep with those who weep. And I want to be willing to invite others into my pain, too, and, uh, and not hide from them. Oh, oh yeah, one, one other thought, because I know the suffering piece, I mean, that's probably the number one reason why people hit the unfollow button or never follow to start with, right? They're like, well, if there's, you know, so much suffering in the world, how can there be a loving God? And so I think it just to pause on it for a second and say, look at the other option then, because the other option is, well, if there's suffering in the world, there can't be a good God, so I won't believe in God. It's like, not believing in God doesn't make suffering any easier. In fact, just because we can't always put our finger on it and say, we don't know why God has allowed this to happen, the one thing I've, I find great comfort in is the fact that while there may be no other answer if we don't believe in God, this God was willing to come into this world and actually suffer alongside us. 
That's the beautiful thing about the Christian message, that when you just take God out of the picture completely, all of a sudden the suffering is totally meaningless, and it's probably even more painful than to say, I'm not sure why this is happening, and as you said, you kind of beat up his chest and beat up on his chest and say, why? But at the end of the day, you know, but he was willing to come and suffer alongside us and journey with us, and that's the God that we serve. And just because we can't find the answer, it doesn't mean that the answer's not there. So... Another dimension of the mystery, mystery for me is that it's very unequally distributed among God's people. You know, mm. I've never ever been able to figure that out. My, my personal own life, I have not known much suffering. My wife has known more than I have, but personally as a family, we have known very little suffering. And I've often struggled with that. Uh, you know, what right does that give me, especially ministering in a congregation, in any congregation, and this room is no different. There's huge amounts of pain present at any given time. And I've often always struggled with, Lord, I don't really have credibility with the suffering people in our congregation. I never have suffered much. Mm. And so how, how do you live in the light of that? Uh, I think uh, you learn from suffering people. That's been very helpful for me uh, for many years. For most of my life at Rexdale, there was a paraplegic in our congregation who became my closest friend. And I just learned so much from him. And, and that that's helpful uh, as well. And... John Piper once said, he said, don't worry about suffering. By faith, get on the path of obedience when God is calling you to obey something. If that path of obedience should involve suffering, then you continue through that and bring into that situation the promises that God gives that this suffering is not meaningless, it is working a weight of glory. So uh, we're not to either pursue suffering or to avoid suffering, but to pursue obedience. And then it's up to God. It's interesting in the book of Hebrews on the chapter on faith, almost next to each other it says, by faith some people escaped the edge of the sword. By faith other people were put to death by the sword. Mm. So some were killed by the sword, some escaped the sword both by faith. So it wasn't the quality of a person's faith mm. that determines whether or not they need to suffer. But it's God's sovereignty in that situation. And then the community dimension becomes crucial that we, we suffer with those who suffer, we rejoice with those who do. So those are some elements to the question. By the way, the single best book I've read, I haven't read uh, Keller's book yet on suffering, which I've heard is excellent, but Peter Kreeft, who's a Roman Catholic theologian at Boston College, wrote a book called Making Sense Out of Suffering. Uh, easily, if not the, certainly the best I've read so far, will always be one of the best ones. Making Sense Out of Suffering by Peter Kreeft. Last name is K-R-E-E-F-T. K-R-E-E-F-T. I think one of the other things to bear in mind, too, is to know that, you know, being a follower of Jesus doesn't tidy up our lives. In fact, it makes it messier in some senses. Um, and that the scriptures are a story full of, of pain and suffering, but it, it actually, when you, you know, it's like when you hold a worldview up against reality around you and go, does this make sense? Like, is what I'm reading or being taught or being asked to follow, does it actually make sense with the world around me? And it's like, yeah, this is a book of difficult realities of people in the midst of pain but whom God is redeeming. And it's like, yeah, that's actually the world I see around me. <laughs> and so I I at least we can say, you know, even for, and I often think, you know, because there are people in your lives that say, well, I can't, like Mark said, I can't follow a God who is like that. So you know what, God, God actually doesn't ask us to just keep a stiff upper lip or pretend that he doesn't care or doesn't know. But the story of God and his people is full of our pain and his redeeming it and, and healing it. And so just invite people to say, maybe take this closer look at what following Jesus really actually means or implies um, than, than sort of a neat, tidy thing that answers all my questions and deals with all my problems. Um, one of the ones that came in this week that I think uh, is really important, and it, it's a little bit related to what we've been talking about, and Joe, I think you've got it up on the screen there, 
in light of all of the killings and the widespread mentality uh, of the Muslim faith that there should be religious cleansing, or at least you know, in ISIS and their view of that, how do we explain our faith when God asked Israel to wipe out entire nations? How is it different? How do we explain that our God, our faith, is different? Wow. Well, Over to you again. Yeah. <laughs> C.S. Lewis said one of the problems is people ask complex questions and get upset when they don't get simple answers. You know? yeah. There just really isn't a simple answer to this question. It's massive. Um, I would answer a question to a Christian differently than to a non-Christian. So if, if it's your own question, if it's a person who's already a follower of Jesus, I think we sang a song earlier on about Jesus being absolutely central. I, I knew this question was coming up because Vijay texted me earlier on in the week. So I've been thinking about this for a while. And the starting point, I think, needs to be Jesus. Uh, and he's not this kind of God. Jesus talks about loving our enemies, doing good to those who hate you. And he said to Pilate, my, uh, soldier, my followers are not of this world. Otherwise, they would fight a different kind of battle. Um, and so there is absolutely no question about what Jesus came to teach. So we need to start there. And he is the story. Everything else leads up to that. And you need to immerse yourself, I would say, much more in the whole story of which Jesus is the culmination. So there are parts of it that we don't understand. But where it's all leading to, we understand very, very clearly. And there's, there's a stark contrast between eth the ethic of Jesus and, and everything else. In fact, one of the uh, international workers who works in Indonesia uh, was working in collaboration with a Muslim imam friend of his to develop some uh, basic uh, moral values education for kids. And they actually came up with a book that a Muslim publishing company was willing to publish for use in the Muslim schools there. But he said at one point in the conversation, yeah, they, when they were looking for verses on both the Quran and the Bible on forgiveness, they couldn't find a single one in the Quran. And he said to our missionary friend, he said, the difference between your faith and mine is, for you, love is ultimate, for us, justice is ultimate. Mm -hmm. And so the ultimate issue is Jesus and love. So as a Christian, my encouragement to you would be to immerse yourself in the whole story. Uh, Calvin Miller said something that was absolutely brilliant. He said, ultimately, he said, the need for specific answers to specific questions is swallowed up in the greater issue of the lordship of Jesus Christ over all questions, those that have answers and those that don't have answers. The need for specific answers to specific questions is swallowed up in the greater issue of the lordship of Jesus over all questions, those that have answers and those that don't have answers. So as you pursue these questions, and you should be them, you should, because we're supposed to love God with our mind, um, and I haven't done enough research on this, and so I've recently collected some recommendations, a book by Paul Copan called Is God a Moral Monster and When God Misbehaves? Those are two books written by Paul Copan, which I plan to read. But for the Christian, I would say, m immerse yourself in the whole story, make Jesus central. And to the non-Christian, and I'm not primarily an apologist, I'd start with Jesus. I'd say, you know what, that is a huge question. I'm not sure I have the full answer to that question. But let's kind of start with where the, where the gospel is. And once people become followers of Jesus, and there, there is no problem with this question. It's absolutely unique. Couple of quick comments that came, the thought that came to my mind was that, first of all, Israel couldn't attack anybody they wanted to. God told them very specifically. It wasn't indiscriminate. He also told them not to attack certain people. You don't find that in the ISIS version, which is attack everybody all the time, kill them all, they're all infidels, and you are great. 
Secondly, God never said to Israel, you are great. <laughs> he said, you deserve the judgment just as much as anybody else. So even at that macro level, there are some startling differences between the two. So those are some thoughts that happen. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. One, one spin-off question that I find comes from this question is then a blanket statement to say all religion is bad, right? It's like, well, look what this is, you know, these religious radicals are doing, and religion just ruins the world. It poisons everything. And they start to even say, here's what Christianity has done, and they talk about, uh, you know, 500 years ago what happened in the medieval world, and they talk about what's happening in North, or what happened in Northern Ireland with the Protestants and the Catholics, and they say, see, this is what happens when religion gets involved and Jesus gets involved, and you just see all these horrible things happening. And so I, I just say in that moment, just pause for a second and just ask a few questions because it's amazing what you'll discover. You'll say, you know, what is it that you know about Christianity? The one thing they'll know is, well, there's a symbol of a cross, right? It's like you don't have to go into some obscure theological thing. You say there's a cross at the center of Christianity, and it's a sign of someone giving up his life for his enemies. And in fact, when his people tried to back him up with swords and tried to fight on his behalf, he said, no, I'm sacrificing my life. Put that up against everything you see that people say, but then how can Christians do this and say, do you really think they're Christians? Do you really think they're following Christ? Because followers of Jesus actually follow Jesus, and that's not what Jesus did. And so we will always be able to find religious people who call themselves followers of Christ, but put it up against Jesus, and all of a sudden you have an amazing conversation with people and an open door to talk about who Jesus actually was. And I find that's one of the bigger blanket statements that comes out of all the atrocities, even this week with France and all the things happening. I think it's an, an open door to talk about who Jesus was and how he was against this. So. I think, too, that the one of the bigger questions is, like, there's things in the scriptures that we look at and go, well, this is kind of weird that, that God would allow this. And I think one of the, the things we see is scripture has, like, a trajectory to it. Um, so where it starts is very different than where it, it ends up. And, and we can actually tell, and if you've been in our church any length of time, you know the whole story is about Jesus. The whole story was heading towards Jesus. But Jesus, in a sense, on the cross doesn't appear on page one because it's not a manual. about. It's, a, it's the unfolding story of history. And so what we see is God working with fallen people. And, and one of the words theologians use is accommodation, that God radically accommodates himself to even the broken ways of people. So you see um, polygamy in the Old Testament. They actually, with, you know, the people would say the fathers of the faith. Some of them had multiple wives or they had, you know, um <coughs> they had maidservants and things like that. And we'd say, well, how could this, like, clearly that's a bad thing. Well, it's interesting because when those books were written in that time, that was a very common thing. But the Bible is subtly always undermining polygamy. Every polygamous relationship in the scriptures goes sour. And so in a culture that that would have been normal, it's actually quite culturally uh, avant-garde, if you want to say that, that <laughs> these writers are actually writing stories about how polygamous relationships mess up marriage. And so it's actually very progressive. It was written thousands of years. It wasn't written today. It's, it's thousands of years old, some of these stories. And it, it was subtly undermining all of the things that we would say, those aren't right, which is even with slavery. You know, people think, well, why didn't Paul and Jesus say, you know, get rid of slavery altogether? Well, it was an institution that the entire world, in a sense, operated on. Certainly the Greco-Roman culture worked on. And yet we know as followers of Jesus, when Paul writes in Galatians, hey, in Christ... There's no male or female, which was one of the great divides. There's no Jew or, or Gentile, which is a great divide. There's no slave or free, which is a great culture. He was starting to lay the foundation that followers of Jesus later on would say, in Christ, how can we keep slaves? And so William Wilberforce was a Christian, Martin Luther King, motivated by the life of Jesus to do this. And so we'd say, look, God worked in ways, but at the point of Jesus in history, everything began to change. 
And so I think that's important to say. Sometimes what we're reading in the Old Testament actually wasn't the preferred ways of God, but he accommodated himself to fallen people. But Jesus comes and shows us the preferred ways of God. Mm. And, and I think that's important to see. For any of the questions that we'd have culturally that kind of offend us, we say, well, maybe what we're reading isn't actually what we think we're reading, or maybe the scriptures are actually subtly undermining all of these things that later on we'd say, yes, you know, that's true, that's right. Years ago, uh, maybe one of the few principles I didn't learn from you as a pastor, <laughs> but another pastor, he said, let what you know about God inform what you don't. Yeah, of course. And so in that situation, I don't know why. I don't know yeah, why he yeah, didn't give him the yeah, heart attack. Yeah, yeah. But I know Jesus came and died for yeah. us. And in the end, you know, we know the end of the story. And so I just let what I know. Jesus loves us so much more than anyone else in the world. And I don't understand yeah. that, but That's I know That's brilliant. That. That's absolutely yeah. true. Us Guinness talks about the principle of suspended judgment. He said, I don't know why, but I know the God who knows why. And I have very good reason to believe in him. I think, too, one of the other things to realize is that we often blame God for the atrocities he's allowed, but give him no credit for the ways that he yeah. intervenes. Yeah, exactly. And I think the truth is that God is always intervening. You know, every, every, every common cold that doesn't turn into pneumonia in the lungs and kills someone. Yeah, right. We say, like, there's, there's intervention happening all the time, and I think the tension between, uh, I guess, maybe three things, God's sovereign control, the broken world, and human being sinful will, right. right? And I see these things happening in my own life all the time. There's stupid things I have done that I did not have to bear the consequences for. There's other things mm. that I bore the consequences of that other stupid people did, or <laughs> people who did stupid things, I should say that, <laughs> <laughs> right? <clears throat> and then there's times when I am oblivious to the fact that God is intervening. I remember when I, when I first had a child and watched the thousand narrow misses in a day when they'd be tearing around our yeah. house with the table at eye's height, honestly. I'm amazed. I remember Joel falling out of his chair and like cracking his head at, at the science center. We thought like, does he have a concussion or whatever? And he was just kind of crying with us for a while. And then, and then he just bounced up a few minutes later. Like I this is a complicated thing where we see God's sovereign will, our sinful choices, and then the, the broken world that we live in. And I think there's a tension between all of them. Like Mark said, you remove God. Now you have the same broken world. You just don't have any hope anymore. And now there's nobody to blame. And so I think sometimes even shaking our fist at God can be a beginning point of a conversation okay. with him to yeah. say, okay, you're there. I don't know what to do with the fact that you're there. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so th I think that's, that's part of it. Yeah. Uh, and also to know that, like, God grieves the brokenness in the world. You know, like I in Genesis 6, er, uh, Genesis 6, right, when the world had gotten so bad, it said God grieved that he had made human beings and they were full of evil. <laughs> you know, that God does feel a sense of uh, brokenness over the world that, that we live in. Here's one that came up kind of um, related to the polygamy stuff. In the Old Testament, there were many who had many wives. Uh, Solomon, who had, I think, 300 wives and 700 concubines. So the word polygamy so falls a little short there to <laughs> describe that. But anyways. <laughs> or times where men had, it all went south for him too, actually the entire yeah. kingdom based on that. But um, Side note, or times where men had children with other women when their wives were barren. It appeared that God allowed this, although it may not have been his plan for marriage. Mm. Um, can we apply this uh, to our culture's view of homosexuality today? Mm. So, uh, maybe said another way, is, is homosexuality one of those issues that either will, some will say, well, um, you know, it's not God's plan, but God will permit it. And therefore, I guess, Im by implication, Jesus' followers and the church should or could permit it. Um, so how do we think about that? Because that is one of the, uh, the parts of the dialogue as people engage over this saying, well, you know, uh, just like slavery, yeah. 
or um, uh, you know, the ancient world's view of women, you know, we understand in Jesus and like the verse I referenced in Paul saying there's no male or female slave or free. Like, so now isn't there liberation now um, uh, for slaves? And aren't, aren't there people, you know, if, if someone's gay or same sex attracted, they, that, that they would say, oh, okay, well, this is now, this is another one of the cultural issues that we can say, well, it, it was prohibited before, but now, you know, have we moved past that? I, I don't have all the facts at my fingertips as uh, much as I would like to because I've only just recently started doing studying in this area. But going back to the whole issue of trajectory, there's a different trajectory on this particular uh, distortion of our image. All sin is ultimately a failure to image God properly. Romans chapter 1 is foundational. You know? And in that sense, uh, homosexuality is no different than any other. In fact, if you read Romans 1, 18 to 32, where it says, God gave them up, God gave them up. That wasn't the last. After that, it says, he gave them up to, to deceit and rebellion and all the kind of sins that affects all of us. So there is, in one sense, it's not different than anything else. However, when I look at slavery, for example, the argument from slavery, uh, like Vijay has already explained that whole trajectory, to early, early enough in history, Paul was speaking about some things, about no difference between slaves and others. There was that developmental understanding that this doesn't belong. Uh, similarly, in the case of, uh, what was the other one? There was slave, uh, Holy Show Women, for example, way back in the book of Judges, Deborah was judging. So there were little strands along the way that said, this is not the way it's going to be. Uh, and then God's work in the world using women in a remarkable way in various places. Hmm. Uh, individual people breaking through, then Wilberforce in the 18th century, all that stuff happened. When it comes to the particular sin of homosexuality and the way that is described, and, and along with that definition of marriage, there never has been that trajectory. There's been a uniform uh, understanding, both in behavior, in exegesis, and in scripture. No hints anywhere of anybody trying to think it was different, except right until our present moment. So there's a fundamental difference as far as trajectory is concerned between slavery, the role of women, and this particular one. So that's kind of fairly my early rudimentary understanding of it. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I caught in the question was this idea of, okay, so at least from that question, it seemed like they were saying, so we understood polygamy was wrong, but God didn't kill them in the sense he let them do it and face the repercussions. So then can we have this posture towards um, homosexuality and say, well, you know what, not God's ideal, but, you know, go right ahead and continue to follow Jesus. It comes with a posture of, uh, it's, it's not God's best, it's not the trajectory, as Pastor Sunder said, um, and it's almost like saying, I know this isn't actually what God wants, I know it's not best for me, but can I get away with it anyways? And I think, I'm not even just talking about homosexuality, when you take that posture right. towards anything, okay, I, I talk with people all the time, the, the, one of the big issues we face is people wanting to marry non-Christians, and I, I think that's another area that we, we need to be really clear on, because it's just such a devastating thing long-term when you see the, the long-term impacts of that. Whenever you have a posture of, I know it's not God's best, but can we allow it or can we uh, engage with it anyways and deal with it? I mean, it's just a terrible posture to have uh, because you really then are not believing in God and believing that he has what's best for you. So I think that's the, the posture issue is always desire to have God's plan for your life and put that before you not. I know this isn't his plan, but it would be more convenient. It would be easier and I wouldn't struggle as much. That's uh, just a, a hard posture to carry forward and it's not going to end well. So just on the posture side of things, that's right. how to answer it. I think too, when, when we um, talk about someone who's same-sex attracted. Like, and I think we want to make distinction between people who are same-sex attracted and people who are engaged in uh, same-sex relationships and same-sex sexual relationships. There's a difference between them. There are the, some, there are many people who are same-sex attracted who 
uh, their understanding of scripture would be like, no, okay, that's not what God has permitted me to act on, and so I have these attractions, but I'm not going to act on them. Similar to someone who is uh, not married and uh, either dating or not and saying, well, I'm not going to be sexually active because God's will for me is to only be sexually active within, within marriage. How do I understand, uh, h- how do I, so just a distinction there. Um, but I think that the big question when it comes to, okay, well, why would, or how could I, or why would God, if someone, uh, you know, is, is born with a same-sex attraction, why would he um, punish them, in a sense, for life by saying, well, you can't, you can't act on that. You're going to have this attraction that you can never um, act on. I think the question for all of us who follow Jesus is, is there, um, there's a death that every one of us is asked to die as we follow Jesus. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, they must take up their cross and follow me. And so part of why we struggle with understanding this is saying, well, why would God ask some people to carry that sort of heavy load and not other people is to some degree because we have a faith that carries no load. We just sort of follow Jesus, it costs us nothing. And so we feel terrible saying, well, how could, how could we ask someone else to carry such a heavy load when we don't have to carry that? Instead of saying, well, actually, every one of us has to die. Every one of us is dying to desires that ones maybe that we know are wrong, but, but we're still going to say, okay, I'm going to die to that desire. I'm not going to act on that. Or ones that we say, well, how could this be wrong? It, just fe- it seems right to me, but God is asking me not to. I have to die to that as well. Is that every one of us as Christians, when Jesus says, come follow me, he says, come and die. And so for some, and I remember a friend of mine who was same-sex attracted and was kind of contemplating following Jesus, and he said, well, you know, if I, if I follow God down this road, what's going to happen? You know, like, uh, w- would I ever uh, end up being sort of led to another man, and would that be okay that I, that I could marry them? And I said, like, God asks every one of us to follow him to give up our lives. Mm. And, uh, and I said, look, sometimes as a pastor, I look at pastors who are ministering in other parts of the world. For them to be a pastor, for them to show up on church on Sunday may mean that their house gets burned down and their wife gets raped or their family gets killed as a result of them become being a pastor. And I say to God, God, why have you asked me to carry so little <laughs> when there are people around the world that have to carry that? And I don't, I don't know the answer to that. But I do know that God has a cross for me to carry, and am I willing to die to it? And, and, and so I'd say to those that are, that, are, that, are, that are single and saying, well, I, you know, I, I can't be sexually active because you know, I'm not married, and what if that doesn't happen? Or if I'm dating someone and that, or, or someone who's same-sex attracted and say, well, I have this desire and I can't act on it my whole life. I'd say every one of us ha- to follow Christ, yeah, we have to die. To, to ourselves, and the scriptures seem to say that that's one of the things that we have to die to and say, okay, mm-hmm. I, and Jesus actually, when he came, he didn't loosen the moral code of actually the Old Testament. He tightened and said, okay, it's not just about not having adultery. If you lust after someone, you're actually committing adultery too. It's not just about not murdering. If you have anger in your heart towards someone, that's like murdering someone. He actually tightened it, and he introduced the alternative lifestyle offered to us in scripture is not same-sex relationships, but singlehood. Like Jesus said in that passage, passage in Matthew 19, there are people who are going to be married, there are people who are going to be single, which was radical for that culture because there was no legitimate single state of living in, in that way. Like if, if you were single, you were either a prostitute or something was so wrong with you that no father wanted to give his daughter to, to be married to you. And Jesus comes along as a single man. Of course, in history and drama, we're always trying to put a woman next to him and think he must have had a relationship with Mary Magdalene because how could you possibly be fulfilled as a single person, right? Like, this is what we think about Jesus. And yet Jesus came as a single, celibate person offering two legitimate, high, holy callings in life, to be married or to be single. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says, you know what, actually, yeah, marriage is great, but I, I'd actually prefer if you weren't married because you can serve the Lord better if you're not. But if you have to, get married. 
Right, which is a very, that's very, it was so countercultural in that day, but it's countercultural in this day. I say the alternative lifestyle that is offered to us is, is heterosexual marriage or singlehood. And, and that we, and I've actually even started saying to my kids, not when you get married, but if. Because that may not be what God calls them to, or that may not be what comes along to us. And so I think we have failed, in a sense, as the church, because we've held up heterosexual marriage as the ideal thing, that the best thing that could ever happen to you, and so fulfilling, and even though every one of you is married, no, that's really challenging, too. It's a different calling. Um, but to say these are two equal paths that God says, come follow me in. Both of them involve death. Both of them involve sacrifice. And that's just a hard thing. Okay. Yeah, just and it is a, a personal story, but I I feel that that pain of okay. So you're telling me everyone else gets to fulfill the desire of their heart, their God-given desire, and I have to just withhold. And I want to just highlight what you said about the idea of obedience and trust in God. So uh, this is a story we we share with our church. I, I have my wife's permission to share this story. But when we first got married, we both waited till we were married, and you know, like our youth leaders told us, you know, then the fireworks will go off. There were no fireworks. It was it was bad, and we you know discovered you know after a few weeks there's actually an issue here we didn't know about, we didn't even know that it was an issue, and we had to see doctors, therapists, and it took literally years, and it's actually still an ongoing struggle, to be honest. And there were, you know, years where I was kind of sh shaking my fist at God, saying, God, I waited, I honored you, I had, like, like, everything I did right, you know, and you leave us with this, and you won't let us express ourselves in this desire of our heart, and it was, like, it was tense. I mean, we went to marriage counseling for it, we saw, like, it was, it was terrible. And yet I look back on that journey, and it's a still an ongoing struggle, and yet I would never, ever look back and say, well, you know what, if I couldn't fulfill my desires in my marriage that I feel God gave me, I should just go and fulfill them with another woman. We never, never had that. I mean, obviously there are te temptations, but the reality was is that when you lean into obedience, you see God doing things that you never would have imagined. And so, as you said, there is a cross to bear no matter the journey. And to just look at someone and say, well, just, you know, just bear, it's that we're all called to that obedience and to see what God is going to do in that when we can't just fulfill every single desire that we have instantly. Um, it takes great faith, and I think that's where you have your church community, trusted people that you share that journey with. And my prayer is that this church is a safe place where someone who is um, on that journey of same-sex attraction, that they would feel safe to be able to share that with the pastor or the home group leaders to say, I want a journey on this. I want to be obedient to God, but everything in me is screaming to just act on what I feel. And I think to follow Jesus means not just acting on what we feel, but following him above all and trusting him with the, the remainder of that. Um, just one of the questions that came up while we were talking and saying, okay, I'm more confused. What are you really saying about homosexuality <laughs> in the church? Um, so this, this is important. Mm. Um, I think it's important to know that there are churches land differently in this. I mean, there, there are some people who would say, well, we don't really believe the Bible. It doesn't have any influence on our lives. So that's, that's a different question. There are people who say, well, that, there's no prohibition to that. Okay, so what about people who are followers of Jesus who would read scripture and say, okay, what does the scripture actually say about this? There are some uh, in uh, some written books of the gay Christian movement and say, no, it's possible to be um, a, a faithful follower of Jesus and uh, be in a same-sex relationship as long as, as it's a married, um, you know, monogamous, uh, one-person-for-life uh, relationship. And there are some would say, well, that's, that's legitimate. And so what the Bible prohibits is sex outside of marriage, not same-sex sex, not same-sex relationships. Um, and then there are others that say, no, like uh, the, the scriptures actually prohibit any kind of same-sex relationship, married or not. Um, where our church is on this is we would hold to a traditional view of scripture that scriptures actually don't permit people in same-sex uh, same attraction to be 
married in the sense of saying like that 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 would be God's that that would be obedient to God that actually that if you are a person with same-sex attraction that the life that God would invite you into to follow would be singlehood Um, not not gay marriage and and that's and I realize that's a that is the uh, most contentious issue right now within the church and there are churches that are different on that for, for those of you that would say, well, I have people I, I'm actually going through, or, or I have children who I think may be struggling with same-sex attraction, my heart would be that this would be a place where we would be willing to say, yeah, I'm struggling with that, and I don't know what to do, and that this would be a place where our kids and our youth, if they do, or they have friends that would say, okay, even though this church may s- say something to me that I find very difficult to, to follow, um, that I would want to figure out how to do that, or figure out why, and have more conversation, and this is hard to have that conversation fully in this setting, but if you are struggling with that, or you know people are struggling with it, we say, okay, we want the church to be a place that we're struggling, just like anyone else that was feeling like God's calling to do something that they think, I don't know if I could do that, and is God really calling me to do that? Okay, that we want the church to be a place where we can actually work that out. Just a couple of things if you want to explore. This probably for myself. I did a series last September on sex and sexuality, and did two whole sermons on this, and it has been the fastest growing experience in terms of my own learning. uh, for those of you who really want to get a good handle on the exegetical side, uh, and on in YouTube, check out a man named Christopher Yuan, Y-U-A-N, Christopher Yuan. He has a one-hour lecture teaching series where he looks at every single verse in the Bible on their subject, and ex- it, it'll help you address the exegetical issues, because the heart of the gay Christian movement Exegetical is, means what is the scriptures actually? Oh, sorry, right. sorry. Interpreting scripture, yeah. yeah. You can see he's 35 years younger than I am. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And that's true. And so you need to, uh, that's very helpful because the heart of the, what's called the gay Christian movement is, yes, that's what the Bible says, but this is not what it means. What does it really mean? Christopher Yuan's book is great. The whole other issue, which is where I have completely changed radically in my behavior in terms of towards people and handling this, is uh, a book by Andrew Marin called Love is an Orientation. And it just helped me to realize that I don't know any of these people. I know one or two people who are same-sex attracted, some who live out their lives and some who uh, in obedience and others do not. But I really, really knew nothing about uh, what they go on, what kind of things they struggle with on the inside, how do you deal with. And so directly as a result of reading this book, Love is an Orientation, it's called Elevating the Conversation. Uh, there was a young man in our congregation, who, uh, young, young, relative, younger than me, I should say, who is, attends this church and he's actually living with another man and they're raising a son. So I just reached out to him. I said, would you be willing to meet with me regularly? So I've had three lunch meetings with him right now, and I'm getting to know him, just asking a lot of questions, learning. Closing uh, thing for, I guess, Christians. Psalm 73 is an absolutely crucial psalm when it comes to questions. It begins by saying, uh, surely God is good to Israel. Surely God is good to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There he's struggling with the fact that God promises prosperity to the obedient and judgment of the wicked, but that's not what life is doing. Life was beating up on theology. What do you do? He said, when I tried to understand these things, it was oppressive for me. He couldn't figure it out with his mind. He says, until I entered the sanctuary of God. Ultimately, the tensions between life and theology are not resolved at the level of the mind, although you do need to love God with your mind. Ultimately, they are resolved in worship. And so I go back to the other other question. The Lordship of Jesus is the thing that is the bottom line answer to all of these things. So while you are asking God these questions, while you are praying, while you are reading, never, never stop exalting and worshiping Jesus. That's the center.